Hey, it's Nancy. Before we begin today, I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Crime Beat early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On Crime Beat, I always try to give you a behind-the-scenes look at the stories I'm covering. I share 911 calls, court exhibits, and often police interviews with the suspects. These interviews provide important insight to investigators. Here are a few you might remember. There's no way, based on the information that we have, that this can be anything else but a homicide. I don't believe that, honestly. You're going to have to start believing it. And I'm just curious as to why you want to leave, what you do. I just, I just want to get it over with, I guess. I don't know. Okay. Just, and that's fair. You know, it's, oh, I feel so shitty. Yeah. What do you feel shitty about? Oh, oh boy. Oh. Never in a million years would I have ever thought I would do something like that. I don't know what snapped in me. No idea. You wanted her to stop talking? Yeah. But what was she saying? She never wanted to see me again. She never wanted to see you again? No. What else did she do? What else did she say? I didn't let her say anything else. You didn't let her say anything else? No. Why? I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. Today on Crime Beat, a veteran officer shares what it's like to be across from a suspect in search of the truth when the stakes are high. This is Inside the Interview Room. My name is Detective Mike Shute. Uh, currently working with the Calgary Police Service. I uh, started my service in 2001, so um, almost uh, 21 years uh, completed. Detective Shute is currently with the Homicide Unit and has investigated some of the most high-profile cases I've covered. He's also an experienced crisis negotiator and leads the forensic interview team for homicide and other major crimes investigations. I've done just over 200 interviews in the last 10 years. Not all of these were with suspected criminals. Detective Shute also speaks with witnesses and victims of crime. However, today I'm going to focus on the interviews with suspects as they play an essential role in the search for justice. I've done a lot of high value, high risk interviewing with regards to there's a lot at stake when we're when we get to that part. But it's not about just going in and you know looking for a confession and I say to guys when I'm when I'm teaching interviewing now is confessions are unicorns, uh, you know, quit chasing those. We have a specific set of goals and objectives that we're going to try to meet, uh, achieve through this interview, and how are we going to go about doing that? When I teach interviewing, I teach negotiating. Uh, you know, I talk about um, you know people are in in high crisis, right? People who are in cry high crisis have low rational thought, and our objective is to bring that you know low rational thought up and their crisis down 
so we can get to a basically a level platform where we can communicate with that person, you know, kind of one on one. Before I get into what goes into planning and conducting these interviews, you need to know a bit more about Detective Shoot because his experience is what's made him the interviewer he is today. He worked with the gang enforcement team and the organized crime unit at a time when two rival gangs were executing each other on the streets of Calgary, mostly in public places, leaving dozens of people dead. But I think the majority of the murders uh, were in uh, 05 to 09. So I think all total, there was about 20, I think it was 25 murders uh, contributed to two rival gangs. Detective Shute used his skills to develop important relationships during those investigations, which led to two high-profile members turning on their friends. It was a game-changer in that gang war. You know, we developed a lot of informants, a lot of agents. You know, the interesting thing is, as I say to people, you know, if you got four people that are going to commit a crime sitting in a vehicle today, one of those four are going to stand in court tomorrow against the other three. It's human nature. Self-preservation is a key His ability to establish these connections supports everything he does, including crisis negotiations. I think I take away a lot of how I learned to deal with um, developing informants and agents and then moving into becoming a negotiator. Well, you know, if we've had an officer respond to a call, um, they've been there for two or three hours trying to, you know, resolve the scenario. Um, and it's not able to be done by, you know, our officers while they call in the negotiators. But we don't have a bag of pixie dust that we go out with. It's it's talking to people and, and how we go through certain procedures. Of course, we got a structure that's there, but you still have to be that person on the other end of the phone or, you know, on the other end of that doorway speaking to that person. And that comes with, you know, um, your own personal makeup. So those are kind of the things that I bring forward when I look into how do I develop you know, those rapports and relations with individuals that are going to be in now, uh, say, more emotional or high-valued interview. In movies and TV shows, an interview with a bad guy looks simple enough. But in reality, there's a lot more to it. I think there's a lot of things that are happening in that interview room, you know, besides just walking in and, you know, um, it was the TV would show you, you know, asking the did you do it question. Uh, and somebody puts their head down and they may show one piece of evidence. Okay, I did it. Uh, that's typically not the case. So even when we're looking at the shows on TV with 48 hours or, you know, even if they're, you know, more non-fictional when it comes into CSI uh, shows and that kind of stuff, they're selected, right? They're selected um, interviews or they're selected files. You know, there's not often that they're going to show where the interview goes in and somebody puts their head on the table and the interviewer still interviews for a number of hours um, and gets, you know, virtually nothing. And those are difficult, difficult interviews with having a completely non-compliant subject at the table. Shu told me there's a lot that happens before he even enters a room with a suspect. As an interviewer, we'll know quite often the majority, if not all of the information contained within that crime. What we've learned since the moment that we started uh, investigating this particular crime. So, you know, it's about doing a lot of file review. So what is the forensics telling us? What's the crime scene telling us? What are the witnesses telling us? What's the CCTV telling us? And I'll start looking at their background. You know, what's their makeup? So certain things that I'm looking for, 
um, is their likes, their dislikes, what crimes have been involved in the past, what their background is like for growing up. Do we learn anything about family members? Next, Detective Shoot has to consider who might have the best chance at developing a connection with the suspect. We sit down and we try to think of what could be a good pair with, with going in and talking to a subject. You know, if, if I know that somebody is um, a lot of domestic violence, uh, you know, serious domestic violence, um, you know, when I look at probably some of their background, um, you know, perhaps got some white supremacy stuff in their Facebook or they got some, you know, violent tendencies towards women. Well, I'm probably not going to select the female interview to go in there because they're probably not going to connect whatsoever. It's going to be very difficult for that person. But it goes beyond that connection. Officers also consider their appearance and the atmosphere they want to create for the interview. The positioning of the room may come into play or, you know, certainly my vocabulary or what my clothing would be may be dictated on the individual. You know, if I'm going to interview somebody who is a, a financial investor or somebody who may have high education and kind of a bit of a higher profile job, um, well, I'm going to want to make sure that I'm looking a bit more professional just so, you know, that person is, is kind of looking and judging me when I walk in through the door. But I may, you know, dress down a little bit different, uh, you know, when I'm talking to somebody um, you know, who might not be fitting the same parameters as uh, somebody who's highly educated and perhaps um, their image is something that really sets their identity, if that makes sense. Our tone, our pitch, our cadence, um, the topics that we talk about. When talking to these suspects, officers need to keep in mind that everything they do in the room will come under scrutiny if the case goes to court. And if they don't follow all procedures, the interview can be thrown out altogether. If I'm going to go in there and I'm going to say the wrong things, or I'm going to berate somebody, or I'm going to treat somebody with disrespect, you know, those type of avenues as a police officer, it's not going to stand the test of court. So it's no good to go in and get information from somebody, or if they do, you know, decide that they want to confess, well, that's no good, you know, if it doesn't stand court a year and a half from now. So... That's some of the things that I think about when I'm teaching and talking to, um, you know, members when they're going to interview people. It's not just about what we're going to get today because you may come out and feel good about what you did in the interview room. If it doesn't stand the test of court, we're still letting everybody down when it comes to, you know, if somebody's been victimized or a victim family. Clearly, when we're dealing with, a, a, you know, a sexual assault, um, a murder, child abuse, those areas, they're going to be held at higher scrutiny by the crowns, defense, the courts. So, you know, it's higher risk. You've likely seen a good cop, bad cop routine on TV or in movies. But Shoot told me that's not a technique he uses. And if you see an interview in real life that appears that way, it likely means the interviewer has become frustrated and lost their composure. Officers also have to be prepared for the unexpected. Until we walk into that door and actually get into the interview room, we don't know what we're going to guess. All too often, a suspect will clam up in an interview, even when a confession seems like a sure thing. A good example of that is a case we recently shared of Taylor Toller, Alan Penny Legion, and Sean Boshuk. 
Dustin Duthie made several admissions to both a 911 communications officer and the arresting officer. But when he was put in the interview room, he stopped talking. They bring somebody in and, you know, a person is uh, saying some things or trying to say stuff, but we're shutting them down and, you know, make sure that they get their lawyer calls and, and we're going through our, our proper legal procedures. And, uh, you know, so the guy's like, you know, uh, this guy is talking a lot. You know, it's hard to keep him quiet type thing while, you know, we make sure those legal procedures are put in place. And, uh, you know, you think, okay, well, maybe this person's going to talk when we get in the interview room and they get in there and they completely shut down. I think my longest um, with a non-compliant subject has been about uh, about eight hours, eight, eight and a half hours. Uh, and another multiple murder gang investigation uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and I did the interview and, um, you know, the guy never really spoke a single word. Um, so those are very difficult interviews to contend with. You know, at the end of the day, I think that nonverbal, non-compliant people also say something with not speaking. Uh, you know, I certainly, if it was me and somebody accused me of something, I would profess my innocence till the end of day. Some of these interviews can happen when there's a lot on the line. Remember in our series, Hunted by Evil, when Nathan O'Brien and his grandparents were still missing? Police attempted to get Douglas Garland to give them answers. Yeah, I mean, those are super frustrating. Um, you know, we had switched out some interviewers uh, when, you know, specifically uh, Garland. And, um, you know, we, we put a lot of time and effort, energy, and we did everything I think we could have done to obtain some information early on. Uh, the unfortunate thing is that's where interviewing is kind of an interesting beast because it's human nature. In some of those files, they're contingent on as we're sitting there and we don't know what is the final outcome, um, you know, somebody's been kidnapped, you know, have they been murdered? Are they being, you know, contained somewhere, food, water, oxygen, all those kind of things. So yeah, those are, um, those are extraordinarily difficult to deal with on a personal level. They're, they're extraordinarily you know, difficult to deal with because you know, somebody's life may be hanging in the balance. So, you know, whether you're in the room or whether you're part of that team, um, you know, trying to elicit that information, that's an extraordinary, frustrating, uh, and a difficult day to, to be involved in those. Over the years, Detective Shute has developed interview strategies. Some he can't share for obvious reasons, but he says a lot of it comes down to basic interpersonal skills. If you can't develop good relations, first impressions with individuals, you're going to find it difficult to be a good interviewer. Interestingly, you know, we think that good interviewers and, you know, good negotiators and those type of areas are, are you know, really uh, talkative people. And to a certain degree, they are. But I mean, what makes a good interviewer is somebody is going to be a good listener. You know, they're going to be patient with that person, right? They're going to, um, you know, understand some of the persuasion techniques that we have, but they're just going to be non-judgmental and be able to be open-minded and speak to that person and how they present themselves, um, you know, by their, their tone, their engagement, their body language, all of these things are taken into consideration when, you know, an interviewer is going to go in and, and tackle um, a specific interview that we're going to perform. Right. So it's not just about being able to be the most talkative or most friendly person. Sometimes it's a matter of simply being able to adapt to evolving situations. 
as an interviewer, mentally, I'm always trying to think two steps ahead. And that's where a good um, secondary interviewer for maybe listening outside will help if I miss something because I'm always thinking a couple of steps ahead. Um, so, you know, you're being open-minded, you're being non-judgmental, and you're looking for the truth no matter what that is. So the reality is, is, you know, if somebody all of a sudden says something, you know, I'm certainly not going to want to be shocked and then lose my whole train of thought and, and my composure. You know, it's, uh, it's just about learning what that truth is so I can advance that proper investigation. There's quite a few of them that, uh, yeah, I've been either directly involved interviewing or um, indirectly by assisting with developing interview plans, strategies. Um, and as the interview is occurring, there's lots of times we will be there to help provide information or provide assistance when somebody comes out. You know, even as, a, as an experienced interviewer, you know, I had one uh, not too long ago where, uh, you know, I was in doing the interview and I come out and I talk to one of our detectives and I'm like, I feel like I have two left feet. And, uh, you know, it took a few minutes for him to, you know, he was chatting Well, you did this and this and this, and here's where we wanted them to go. And, you know, now don't mess this up, get back in there type thing and kind of recompose yourself. And you, you depend on, on some other people to assist you with that, to go back in and make a valiant attempt at doing a good interview. Shu told me a good interview will get to the truth, whether that helps convict a suspect or clear them. We want to give people their opportunity to speak to an offense. If they're under arrest and they're being interviewed, you know, the last thing we want to do is put somebody in jail who's not responsible for the offense. So, you know, we're looking for those, you know, comparisons of what they're telling us in a story to what we know in the investigation. You know, are we going to, you know, clear somebody who's being accused of somebody and they're innocent, can we clear them? Because they're telling us the story and we're able to cooperate with what they're telling us. Officers also have to consider that just because someone gives a confession doesn't mean they're telling the truth. Detective Shute has basically heard it all. We had a file back in 2013, I think it was, uh, I was working with Dave Sweet and he phoned me one night, 11 o'clock at night, and said, we just had somebody walk in and wants to confess to the specific uh, shooting in the, at a bar. Um, I happened to be the affiant on that file. We came in and I interviewed the guy because uh, we never had anybody else that could do it at the time. So I interviewed the guy and the guy is confessing to murder. And I'm taking the information and he had a lot of pieces of the puzzle. Like, he knew a lot of information. And um, it turned out at the end of the day, he knew a lot of the information because he knew the people that were involved and heard the story and knew what occurred. But his ultimate goal was he wanted to, he figured if we charged him, he'd go to remand. He could apply to be shipped back to another province, Eastern province. And um, at that point, he would then profess his innocence, but he wanted a free ride back to another province. As a side note, Shu told me that individual was taken to hospital for a psychiatric assessment. Then there's the fact that they're sitting down across from people accused of committing terrible crimes. It's just the emotional side that you have to control. And I think over a period of time, you recognize the value of what you're doing. You can better separate yourself from the emotion when you're in there during that period of time. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have a lot of emotion prior to, um, you know, as we're going through the files themselves, you're going through the forensics. So you become emotionally involved into that 
um, investigation itself because you're looking at all the aspects. Now you're going to speak to that person uh, to hopefully get some truthful statements about what occurred um, so you can assist that investigation and that family or individual at a later date through court. I think you just have to recognize your own um, strengths, abilities, and limitations. I think the limitations are the key. You know, when we talk outside of policing or you talk to people in general public and they're saying, well, I can't believe that you could go in and sit down and interview somebody who is, you know, uh, sexually assaulted one or more people or children or murdered a child or murdered her spouse. You know, I don't think I could ever do that. And I think 20 years ago, I probably would have said the same thing or, you know, often you hear people say, well, if I was in the room, I would do this. And I, I kind of chuckle and say, it's easy to say what you would do until you're in a situation. You know, I go in and I do these things and not that you become robotic because you become very engaged in it, but you know that there's a specific purpose to what you're doing. Detective Shute said his key to success is balancing work and his personal life. I couldn't go in and do the things that I'm doing and concentrate on all the legal aspects of trying to obtain a truthful statement from somebody while I'm having some issues outside of work. So having a solid family uh, has provided me with the structure to allow me to do gangs, organized crime, you know, 10 years in homicide work. And we've, we've worked, uh, you know, some pretty horrific things in the last 10 years. To me, the, the, the strongest key is, is solid family foundation. Um, and then personally, it's, you know, I, uh, I subscribe to Wild TV and I watch a lot of fishing and I watch a lot of hunting. Um, you know, and it's just recognizing if you've selected to steer your career in a way that, uh, you know, that I've selected mine, uh, it's going to come with some bumps and bruises and, you know, you're going to be through the trench for a bit. That doesn't mean that you're necessarily a completely broken individual, but you know, it's okay when you have those extra stressful days or, you know, you might not be yourself. It's a problem if it's every day, but you know, if you're able to say, you know, it's okay, I got a bit of stress or a bit of anxiety today. I'm going to change my environment a little bit and I'm going to go, you know, I don't know, I'm going to go, you know, put some more fishing line on a fishing rod or, or, you know, I'm going to go up for a hike in the mountains tomorrow or whatever the case may be. It's all of those outside things that allows you to deal with the amount of stress that you've had at work. Shute uses his expertise from the interview rooms in all aspects of his policing career. I teach negotiating at the Canadian Police College. I've done so on a variety of courses. And I tell people day one, you know, you'll join policing to, to hopefully leave people in a bit of a better place uh, when we leave them than what we found them. We want to do what we can to help. Lots of negotiations are done by phone. Uh, we do lots of face-to-face -face negotiations. And that's a range. Like there's sometimes we don't even really know what we're getting into until we get there. Um, you know, was it a barricaded person because they were involved in a shooting? The police, you know, were just happened to be on scene and now there might be a short chase and a person ran into a house, they're armed or barricaded. And now we're hoping to resolve that peacefully. Could it be a domestic situation where, you know, there was an assault that occurred? Um, you know, somebody left the house, made the complaint, now the person is contained in the house. They're barricaded and they're not willing to come out. Threats back to the police. Uh, suicidal um, individuals we deal with quite a bit. 
Um, and you know what? Uh, I think there's one important message to, to go out there is for people that are in crisis and suicides uh, or suicidal tendency is is to reach out. There are people out there that, that are willing to listen and willing to help and uh, move to that next step of recovery. And what I say to people when you become a negotiator is, as a police officer, you may or may not save somebody's life. You become a negotiator, you will save people's lives. His contribution to the community goes far beyond the interview room. One example is a recorded one-on-one conversation with a former high-profile gang member that's played at the YouthLink Calgary Police Interpretive Center. My understanding is, is uh, you know, every every grade six um, in Calgary goes to see the YouthLink Center, and ultimately, will end up seeing that video. So. You know, when you look at what kind of legacy you can leave and what, what have you done through your career, that's kind of made you um, be able to look back at what you've done and, and how you've been able to put some things forward. Those are one of the things that I think for me has been, you know, a personal uh, achievement that I've, I've enjoyed. I want to thank Detective Mike Shute for his willingness to be a part of this conversation. He's an extremely busy investigator, and I really appreciate his time and insight. As a part of my commitment to pulling back the curtain on crime reporting, I'll be sharing further episodes like this, so stay tuned. Thank you for joining me. If you or someone you know needs help, you can text HOME to 686868. It's a crisis line that provides free support 24-7. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work on this episode. And thanks to Chris Bassett, the acting VP of National and Network News for Global News. I'd love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing Crime Beat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find me on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and you can join me on Instagram at nancy.hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time.